0: When you enrich the lives of your employees through purpose powered leadership, they'll grow your business for you. Welcome to the Higher Purpose Podcast, where you'll discover how to champion a culture of courage and love. Stop dealing with symptoms and get to the root of the problems in your business. This is the Higher Purpose Podcast with your host, Kevin Monroe.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Higher Purpose Podcast. This is episode 48, and today we're kicking off a series of conversations geared to take a deeper look into some of the elements and aspects that are distinctive about purpose-powered businesses and their leaders and founders. Joining me for today's conversation is someone with a unique vantage point on the growth of entrepreneurship and the rise of purpose-powered business. It's Bo Burlingham. Bo is now an editor-at-large of Inc. Magazine and the author of five books, the most recent one being Finish Big, How Great Entrepreneurs Exit Their Companies on Top. However, it was a previous book, a book that's over 10 years old, actually had the 10th anniversary edition a couple of years ago that prompted me to invite Bo here to join us today. About 15 years ago, Bo became so enamored, curious about many of these companies that he wrote a book about them. The title of the book was Small Giants, Companies That Choose to Be Great Instead of Big. Today, Small Giants is much more than a book, as you'll hear later in the conversation. This is going to be an enjoyable and enlightening conversation with Bo Burlingham. Thanks for joining us, Bo. So, welcome, Bo Burlingham. What a delight to have you join us. And I'm looking forward to hearing what's on your mind because you've just observed so much about the power of purpose in business from a unique vantage point as a journalist. But first, what's something you'd like us to know about you as we begin this conversation?
2: Well, I, I guess you could say, I, as you mentioned, I'm a journalist and I've basically been focusing on uh, entrepreneurship. For about forty years, and uh, the world has changed a lot in those forty years, and I've learned a lot, and I've been very fortunate to learn from some of the most uh, creative minds in business, uh, and I've 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 known a lot of I've been blessed to know a lot of really uh, great entrepreneurs, and. They've been my teachers.
1: Yeah, and and so, Bo, I mean, when I started thinking about this, it's kind of like you've had a front row seat and a backstage pass to, to just watch, <laughs> right? I mean, because you've had, as a journalist, you've had access that a lot of people wouldn't have, and you've had rich conversations. But as you said, you've watched this for 40 years. So before we get into some of your observations, tell us about
2: that journey. Uh, well, um, you know, I... Uh, I had actually, uh, I got to a point in my career, I was a general interest uh, magazine journalist. And, uh, um, and it was a sort of a uh, free, I was a freelancer. And freelancing is feast or famine, mostly famine. <laughs> and I had uh, uh, two young children. And at a certain point, I realized I needed to get a real job. And at that point, a headhunter Came along and asked me, said that Fidelity Investments in Boston, where I lived, was uh, looking for a writer. And I said, Well, they don't want me. I mean, I don't know the difference between a stock and a bond. And she said, That doesn't matter. They can teach you all that. They just want somebody who can write. So I went in, I got interviewed, I got hired, and uh, I spent a year at Fidelity Investments. About um, toward the end of that year, I got a call from a friend of mine uh, who'd been at Boston Magazine and had moved over to Inc., which was a, pretty much a startup then in Boston. And uh, he said that Inc. was looking for uh, people who had a background in general interest magazine writing, uh, but knew something about business. Well, by virtue of the fact that I'd been at Fidelity for a year, I knew something about business, not very much. Um, and so one thing led to another, and I wound up getting an offer from Inc., and I uh, moved over from Fidelity to Inc., and that was really my introduction to the whole world of entrepreneurship, although when I look back, uh, Fidelity itself at that point was a, a very entrepreneurial company, and there were a lot that I was learning that I, I really wasn't completely aware of until much later. and. Um, um, so I I went I went and you know it was a it was I, I this was in 1983 and uh, you know it's easy to forget that there was a time when it really wasn't a compliment to call somebody an entrepreneur sure. it was a, sort of a put down it was like can't you get a real job and uh, uh, that image of entrepreneurship was beginning to change in the uh, early. 1980s. uh, You know, I like to think that Inc. played a role in that. Um, I, you know, Ronald Reagan played a role in that because he was a champion of entrepreneurship. Uh, But mainly I think it was changing because of the the people who were building these new companies Hmm. and who were becoming very well known. Uh, You know, Steve Jobs. I could just go through the list, uh, obviously Bill Gates and, um, you know, people like Yvonne Chouinard at Patagonia and, uh, Tom Stenberg at Staples. And, uh, you know, I could just go, go, go on and on. And I was very fortunate to sort of wind up in a situation where I could get to know a lot of these companies and the people who were running them when they were still pretty young. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, I, that, was, uh, that was very exciting, actually, because we were aware of the fact that there was this very big change that was going on in the economy. And, uh, in fact, uh, sometimes back then, we felt like we were the only people seeing it. Wow. Because, you know, the other major business magazines and newspapers really weren't paying any attention to entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, um, and I mean, I, have a, I had a friend who went to work at Fortune who basically said that he wanted to write about some of these new companies coming up. And they said, well, we don't write about any company that isn't doing at least $100 million in sales. Well, by the time you get to $100 million in sales, a lot of other things have happened. Yeah, And, and um, so... Well, Bo, we- I want
1: to interrupt you a moment, and I want to... Okay. Unpack two things that you've just said before we lose them. Okay, One of these is that that I think there's a real parallel between your path and a lot of entrepreneurs' paths. And and that is that it wasn't that well mapped out. That there's a lot of things that just kind of happened.
2: Right. It's true. Very true. Um well, yeah, in in a way that's true, although I I I'm not an entrepreneur. And, no, 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 uh, I'm just
1: talking about your path in journalism, having right. parallels to right. a lot of the folks that we regard as brilliant entrepreneurs. They were just kind of taking a step at a time and finding momentum and going and great things happening. It wasn't that they had it all mapped out.
2: Yeah, well, that's, that's very true. And, uh, I mean, I got to experience that at Inc., which was, as I said, you know, it was founded in 1979. Uh, was only four years old when I got there. It wasn't even four years old when I got there in 1983. And uh, Bernie Goldhirsch, who was the founder and a wonderful guy, um, who I learned a tremendous amount from, um, was uh, really sort of the the force behind the magazine. And he, you know, we were, there were a lot of people like me who were journalists who were just sort of trying to understand what it was that we were dealing with. Hmm. And uh, Bernie had a major role in sort of shaping our thinking about that.
1: So he had the foresight of, of really catching what was going on in entrepreneurialism. Is that?
2: Well, he, he, he basically was a guy who had, um, he'd gone to MIT and when he graduated, he decided what he really wanted to do was to sail and, uh, so he went down to the Caribbean and, uh, to teach sailing and to sail himself. And then he started a newsletter, uh, which was just for sailors called sail. And well, sail became a magazine and, uh, suddenly he found himself in business. He never intended to get into business. Um, uh, this is a very typical story as you know, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, sort of like Ben and Jerry, you know, they were, they were ice cream guys. They didn't. Really think about that they were in business, but Bernie um, realized that he, there he was having to deal with all kinds of questions that he didn't know the answers to, and um, he would look around at the you know the major magazines, Forbes, Fortune, and Business Week, and there was nothing in them for him, hmm. um, and uh, he just he figured well that he probably wasn't alone and uh, so he decided that really what he needed to do was to start another magazine which was really for people like him and he hired a couple of people from McGraw-Hill to uh, check it out and to advise him and they told him it was the stupidest idea they'd ever heard. Why would anybody uh, want to uh, advertise to, you know, people in small companies and uh, he paid them and ignored them, who like a good entrepreneur and uh, went ahead and started the magazine and uh, ink was a ink was a in the early days was a phenomenon uh, I, they they subsequently used to teach it teach the startup of ink in in journalism classes um, because Bernie had been uh very creative and um, wow! In, in getting the magazine up and running. And it, it, the problem he faced was that he needed money to do that. And so he wound up selling Sale magazine, uh, which I think is still around. Um, mm-hmm. And he always sort of regretted having to do that. But he, he, his passion at that point was really entrepreneurship.
0: Mm-hmm
1: so what are some of the observations you've formed about entrepreneurship and how it's matured in the years you've been chronicling the journey
2: well there have been a huge number of changes because I mean today entrepreneurship has uh, is 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 very different that the sort of the environment for entrepreneurs is extraordinarily different uh, than it was back in the early 1980s. I mean, you know, today people have organizations like uh, EO, the Entrepreneurs Organization, and um, Vistage. uh, um, And uh, there there are all these resources uh, for people who are starting businesses around it just weren't available back then. And uh, we well, you said
1: they were kind of the outcast back then. Yes. And now it's really popular to be an entrepreneur.
2: Yeah, now it's a compliment. You know, it's like, oh, yes, I'm an entrepreneur. Even politicians are claiming that they're entrepreneurs. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, so it's it's the environment has, has changed dramatically. Um, certain things haven't changed. I mean, it's taken some hard knocks in order to realize that. But um, fundamentally, you have to um, have uh, more revenue than your expenses. <laughs> and, if, and if you run out of cash, you're going to go out of business. I mean, the, there was a period during the late 1990s when people were... Talking about how all the rules of business had changed, but they found to their chagrin that in fact some of those rules hadn't changed. And uh, when the m- money that they were getting from investors dried up, you know, we had the crash, the dot bomb, as they say. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, it's it's been you know it, it's the thing about it is you never get to the point. Uh, where you feel like you really know it all. If you do get to that point, that you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's sort of a constantly uh, evolving story, and uh, you know you have to c- constantly uh, learn to keep up with it. Uh, and I, I've always felt that one of the most important characteristics of an entrepreneur is curiosity, mm. um, and uh, uh, that uh, the entrepreneurs who are sort of curious uh, to, to really find out what's going on, what needs to go on with their businesses and also in the world in general, um, have, have an advantage.
1: Say more about that. And I know that you've kind of followed your own personal curiosities uh-huh. that have led to some of the books you've written,
2: right? Right. No, that's true. Um, well, I, I think the big thing, that I found, which was a shock to me initially in the 1980s, was that um, I found that when I went in and I I came from sort of, as a kid, I was a a fairly radical person. Um, You know, it was the 1960s, and I grew up in the 1960s, and I was part of the 1960s. Um, And it came as a shock to me when I got to ink that I would find that there were a lot of companies that were doing uh, what I considered to be very, very progressive things in terms of how they treated their employees and uh, how they ran their businesses and how they felt about their customers. And a lot of them, and frankly, most of them were Republicans. Um, And uh, they were, um, it was, I, I, I had to sort of, get my head around the fact that um, a lot of the ideas that I'd had before just weren't true anymore, just mm-hmm. weren't true. And uh, um, I had to sort of, it forced me to sort of change a lot of ideas um, and a lot of beliefs uh, that, that I'd had years before
1: that's funny reality has a way of doing that to us sometimes
2: it sure does it sure does and uh, uh, you know if I was fortunate in that I I um, I found it all very interesting Um, I I I didn't um, it, it was just to me it was all it was a constant learning experience and and i was constantly uh i would i would be finding companies that were doing things that were really in some cases pretty extraordinary and uh i i um, mm-hmm. extraordinary sort of in the way that the, in the the relationships that they had particularly inside the company with their employees uh and so forth that um mm-hmm. Uh, really gave me a lot of insight into um, what was well, insight into business in general, and, and sort of what it, what it really took to uh, create a successful business.
1: Okay, so there are two questions out of that that I want to tease out with you. One of those is um, this idea that you kind of started getting glimpses of companies. And you started, from my perspective, you started researching them to see what was going on rather than having a theory of what was going on and looking for proof of the theory. You just kind of started looking at some companies, right?
2: Yeah. (laughs) The other thing, if I'd gone into academia, I might have had a different approach to it. But uh, fortunately, I didn't. Um, And uh, so my question was... You know, it was sort of like an adventure. I'd I I'd go in and it's like, wait a minute, what's going on here? And uh and, and I'd try and uh I'd I'd investigate and I'd learn and uh um it was it was it was exciting, frankly it's still exciting.
0: Yeah.
1: For well, me. You used one of my favorite words a moment ago, and this is extraordinary. So, what were the what was it that caught your attention that that began leading you to investigate these extraordinary qualities and characteristics?
2: Well, um, it was uh, first place. You know, there there were telltale signs. It was like when I when I when I use the word extraordinary, I'm talking about the things the sort of the mundane things that every business has to do. And there, there are some people, some companies that do them extraordinarily well, um, and they put an extraordinary amount of effort into it. And they, that's what makes them extraordinary companies. In other words, it's, uh, it, it has to do really with the relationships. Um, well, it has to do with lots of things, I have to say. Has to, but a lot of it has to do with the relationships that they develop with uh, all the people they come in contact with, so that includes uh, employees obviously and customers and suppliers investors um, you know basically you know business about people mm-hmm. and um, you know if you can figure out how to really uh, develop The kind of relationships with those people where, you know, every entrepreneur has a passion of Mm -hmm. some sort and they have a a view of a change in the world that they can uh, help create. I mean, that's right. That's what what the startup is all about. And uh, uh, sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. but um, you know they um they they're passionate about it and basically if you if if you have uh employees and customers who feel as passionate about it as you do you're going to have uh something very special happen in that business it's going to it's going to i mean essentially that's what small giants is all about i really feel that Small giants, which I wrote in um, when did I write? I wrote it. I wrote it in two thousand four, two thousand five. Uh, was really sort of something that I'd been uh, working up to for the previous thirty years. Um, well, let's well, talk about small twenty, giants. That, that 20 we, well, years. 20, That's one of the
1: things I wanted to talk about. Where did you stumble on this notion of small giants and what, what, you know, what was the curiosity that intrigued you down that path?
2: Well, it had a lot to do with Zingerman's, frankly. Um, And uh, the founders, Ari Weinzweig and Paul Saginaw, um, who I'd sort of been aware of Zingerman's for a while and I'd heard about them. I knew they were doing some interesting things up in Ann Arbor. and uh, I persuaded my editor at Inc. to let me go up and do a story about them. And uh, I was, you know, I was blown away. Um, I, what, what struck me, what, what, was, what fascinated me was the choices that they had made. Hmm. I mean, I mean they had an opportunity. I mean, you know, by the time they were 10 years old, they were already, you know, really very, very famous and right. they and they'd been written up in magazines and newspapers um, all over the world really and um, um, you know they had they, they were famous for the delicatessen, the Zingerman's delicatessen right uh, um, and um, they reached a point where basically uh, Paul and uh, Ari uh, realized that they had a choice to make about where were they going to go next. Um, And um, because they, they they were already getting lots of people coming to them saying they wanted to start Zingerman's uh, delicatessens in other uh, sort of college towns. um, They could have franchised. Mm -hmm. um, They could have um, raised private equity and tried to, uh, you know, started their own Zingermans around the country. Um, You know, a lot of people told them that it was an obvious uh, way to grow and that they'd be crazy not to do it. Um, uh, They also had a a brand name that, um, frankly, there were a lot of big companies that were looking for specialty foods brands, and they could have done what they wanted with that. And they basically decided, look, um, Paul and Ari decided this is, we didn't start this is not what we we started the business in order to create something great and unique and you start replicating something and it's no longer unique by definition and a lot of times it isn't even very good let alone great uh, and so they decided that they had to come up with a different way um, to grow and they came out with a a very what at the time was a sort of a very, very unique vision, which they published in 1994 called Zingerman's 2009. And basically they were going to, instead of just being the deli, they were going to have a whole community in the Ann Arbor area of food related businesses, each of which was going to be great and unique in its own right. So they would have a bakery You know, they'd have a restaurant, um, they'd have a mail order company. There were all these different businesses that they saw that they could launch. And, uh, with each of them aiming to be, uh, aiming to be what the the deli had become in their own fields. And, uh, by the time I went to see them in the early, you know, I guess it was in 2002, um, they were already sort of well over halfway to achieving that, you know. And today they have a, a great bakery called Zingerman's Bakehouse, the fantastic restaurant called Zingerman's Roadhouse. They have Zingerman's Creamery, which makes fantastic uh, cheese and gelato. They have a Zingerman's Coffee Company, which, makes, which roasts great coffee, Zingerman's Candy Company. They've got all these different. Businesses and uh, I, I, I thought, you know, gee, that was really amazing what they'd done. And I think the thing that struck me most was the kind of p- people that they'd been able to join with this. I mean, they, they had um, they'd been able to attract people who had really had who took serious pay cuts in order to come and be part of this exciting experience that was going on. Hmm. And uh, you know there were entrepreneurs who sold their businesses to be part of it, um, and uh, I was I was just extremely impressed with that. And so I wrote an article about it called "The Coolest Small Company in America." That was a cover story in Inc. And uh, um, uh, to tell you the truth, uh, there, there was. It was It got a good response from readers, and one of the readers was a publisher in New York who basically contacted me and said he thought there might be a book there okay and, and I didn't really get that at first. I, I thought there might be a book for Ari and Paul, but I, I didn't see how there was a book for me, but I agreed to go down and meet with him and talk to him and see what he had in mind and he told me that he was thinking about were there other companies out there that had reached this crossroad and made similar decisions, namely, not just to get as big as possible, as fast as possible, but to do something else um, that they considered more important and more in line with what they really wanted out of the business. And uh, I'd been at Inc. by that point for over 20 years, and to tell you the truth, I, I didn't know the answer to that question. Um, but I thought it was a good question. So I, I went out and, and began to look around and uh, to see if I could find companies that had uh, made similar choices to Zingerman's. And that was really the beginning of small giants.
1: Okay, well, let's unpack small giants a little more. And for for you listening, if you're interested in this story from Ari Weinschweig and and Zingerman's, you can hear more on episode 39 of the Higher Purpose podcast when Ari and I sat and chatted just a few weeks ago, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, So businesses, the, the, the traditional mantra was go big or go home for business and all of a sudden you started the, the seed was planted with Zingerman's and then this publisher watered that seed I guess that all of a sudden yeah, yeah. are there more are there others that have chosen a different path yes. and what you discovered is there is a different path and many have chosen it
2: yeah I was I mean I think the thing that shocked me at first was well I went out you know and I I, I looked through back issues of ink and I Um, talked to everybody I knew and told them what I was looking for. And uh, pretty soon the suggestions came rolling in. And one of the first things I realized was that there were a lot more of these companies out there than I ever imagined. Hmm. And uh, I was able to choose the ones that I thought would give me sort of the best sense of what this was. So I wound up choosing 14 companies, um, one of which was tiny, another which is actually quite large. Um, uh, you know, they, they were in different. They were service businesses. They were manufacturing businesses. Um, they were all over the country, and uh, I wound up. and And they had a they had a quality that I had seen in the best companies that I'd uh, you know gotten to know in the early 1980s. Which was that there was something, there was a kind of magical something special about them. If you spent any time around them, you talked to their employees, talked to their customers. They had this sort of power of attraction, um, and I didn't have a name for it. It was actually Gary Erickson of Cliff Bar who gave me the name for it. He 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 said it, 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 he he had a story of his own about how he discovered this and and he realized that. Somebody told him, um, after he'd made his decision not to sell his company, somebody had told him that, gee, you know, you didn't lose your mojo, did you? Mm. And uh, he said, gee, mojo, what's that? Maybe maybe I should be be careful about not losing it. (laughs) And uh, I thought, yeah, okay, well, mojo, that's what I'm talking. Sort of the business equivalent of charisma. Uh In other other words, if a... uh, leader has charisma, you want to follow him or her. If a business has mojo, you want to be associated with that business. want to buy from it, sell to it, work for it, read about it, so forth. And uh, so I was looking for companies that had that quality. And uh, Zingerman certainly did. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, as I went around and, and looked for these companies, I I, I w- that was one quality that I was, always, that I was always looking for, and the question I had when I sat down to write small giants was, okay, where did this mojo come from? Um, mm-hmm. you know, and how had they been, how had these companies been able to hold on to it as long as they did? Because a lot of the companies that I'd known in the uh, early 1980s lost it mm. uh, as they got bigger, and so I. Um, you know, I wound up uh, identifying, uh, ultimately, I, I wound up identifying six qualities that I felt, um, uh, you know, contributed or were important parts of, um, of this sort of mojo that they had. And okay.
1: Well, let's pause for just a moment. We've got something important to share with our listeners. When Mm. we come back, I'm going to ask you about these six qualities of Mojo and how higher purpose plays into it.
2: Okay, for sure.
0: Do you ever think that your work could be a little less ordinary? There's not much in between you and something extraordinary. Just 13 weeks and a bold experiment. Find out more at kevindemonroe.com slash extraordinary to get ready to take your team, your leadership, or your customers to the next level. That's kevindemonroe.com slash extraordinary.
1: We're talking with Bo Burlingham. He's journalist and author. Uh, and he's... Written several books. Right now, we're talking about small giants, and and you identified six qualities that we were talking about right before the break. But what are these six qualities? Mojo is one of those, or the magic behind it. So walk through the qualities, and then because this is the Higher Purpose podcast, I really want to get your thoughts about where purpose plays into that.
2: Well, I, I have to say that uh, purpose, higher purpose is part of the DNA of a small giant. I mean, yeah, if you don't have a small, if you don't have a higher purpose. Is you're not going to be a small giant, um, but in any event, the six qualities um, had to do with uh, number one, one. One of them had to do with the quality of of the leaders. Um, the leaders were very clear in their own minds about who they were, what they wanted, and why. You know, they they couldn't make the decision. You know, you look at R.A. Weinswagen, and Paul Saganol. I mean. You know, everybody was telling them that they had this golden opportunity to, to, to really go national with this company, and, and they said, no, we're going to do something else. Well, you can't make that decision if you don't know who you are, what you want, and why, and that was common to all the people who were, uh, you know, who, who, who were who identified who I identified as small giants. Um, the second quality really had to do with uh, the relationships that they had hmm. with the communities in which they were located. Um, you know, for one thing, it's not, it wasn't only that they gave back a lot to those communities, but they also sort of had their personalities. I mean, the personality of the company was molded by it to the point where um, they very much reflected um, the um, community where they were operating. Um, in other words, you know, you take a company like Anchor Brewing, which what really sort of started the whole craft brewing uh, revolution in this country. You know, it's located in San Francisco. It was founded during the gold rush. Um, hmm. It uh, has been through all of the, uh, you know, earthquakes and uh fires (coughs) excuse me and um you know it uh as we now know you can make great craft brews all over the country but anchor brewing is part of san francisco it's a san francisco landmark i mean it it's like um you know people go to San Francisco and they want to see the Golden Gate Bridge in Anchor Brewing. (laughs) Um, And uh, uh, so, you you know, it's really a a deep part of that community. I mean, that's true. I mean, even Zingerman's, you know, Zingerman's is a quality that uh, Ann Arbor has, which is um, technically it's a Midwest um, city, um, but it has, but it, but it's it sort of like has a lot of East Coast qualities to it. I mean, I think it has the highest circulation of the New York Times outside of New York, um, and uh, Zingerman's has a lot of that qualities as well. I mean, because they're very, they're not just aside from. Uh, wanting to create great food, they want to educate everybody about where that food comes from right the story behind all of the food <laughs> exactly so that that was true of all these companies they 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 had a a personality that reflected very much the communities in which they were located um, you know the the third quality really had to do with their relationships with their customers and their suppliers. And the thing that struck me about it, it wasn't just that they offered good customer service. Uh, you know, that, that was, of course, they, they, they focused on customer service. What struck me most was how personal hmm. um, and they, they were the relationships that they tried to um, develop with customers and suppliers um, And yet, oddly enough, it was really the fourth quality that's a little surprising because it has to do with their employees. Namely, in many cases, their employees really came first. Mm -hmm. uh, Because, I mean, you can understand it. You know, it's sort of like Southwest Airlines. um, Yep. When when Herb Kelleher was always asked, how is Southwest Airlines able to sort of set all these records? Uh, He said, well, that's easy. That's our culture. When he was asked, well, what's the secret of your culture? He said, it's caring for people in the totality of their lives. In other words, not just as employees, uh, but as human beings. And, you know, that was another factor that I saw. Um, You know, and it's sort of easy to understand that if what you really what you want to do is to provide your customers uh, with great experiences and great service, uh, chances are it's your employees who are having those relationships with customers. Right. And if if they're going to really uh, provide something special to those customers, they better be as passionate about the business as you are. Um. And then um. There was a fifth one that I wrote about in the book um, which really had to do with the way that the leaders, again, it came back to the leadership and the way that the leaders uh, felt about uh, whatever it was that their companies did. In other words, not just that, obviously they love their companies, but they also thought that what their companies were doing was something really important. Mm. And, you know, that's, Partly where higher purpose comes in, which is uh, and I have to say that in terms of creating the um, the culture in the company, higher purpose was a critical part of that um, just because a higher purpose in in terms of getting in terms of employees caring about what a company is doing, uh, they better believe that this actually Something that the company is doing in the world that is important and right. and worth worth spending your life on uh, and uh, that 's what and and that was also and and that actually started usually at the top, which is is that the founder the entrepreneur the owner uh felt that what what whatever it was that the company did was really important and that they were making a real important difference in the world by doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, now I subsequently discovered that I'd left one out uh, and, I, and I, it's in the 10th anniversary edition, but um, uh, I had, when, when I uh, had selected these companies, I wanted companies that had been around for at least 15 or 20 years and you know, had made, had a record of profitability during that time. Um, I thought that was enough. Uh, and I realized soon afterwards that it wasn't because some of these companies got in trouble. I mean, one of the companies I wrote about was rhythm and Hughes, which is a great, um, uh, computer special effects company in Los Angeles. And, you know, they, they, they did the, uh, uh, Babe in the City and mm-hmm. the Chronicles of Narnia. Basically, wherever you saw um, talking animals, chances are they had a lot to do with it. And uh, they also produced the Life of Pi, or they didn't produce it, but they did the special uh, effects. Did, well, and, and, and frankly, Life of Pi was all special effects. I mean, <laughs> it, it, the, 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 that ocean that the boat was on uh you know and the tiger that was on the boat, all of that were uh special effects. And uh they won an Academy Award for that as best picture. Uh, well they won it eleven days after they filed for chapter eleven bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And uh so I had to I had to understand that. I realized I had to that I left something out and that I had to really investigate and and, and I did, and, I, and when we came out with a tenth anniversary edition, uh, I added a chapter called basically how small giants fail. Um, and it, you know, this gets down to the fact that, you know, you can do all of these wonderful things, but there are certain critical things you need to have a a, a sound business model, and and what's more, that may change over time. What what makes it sound may change over time. You you had to have a healthy balance sheet, uh, meaning that you'd uh, make sure you had enough cash uh, to to keep going, and uh, um, you know you also had to um, have uh, gross margins, gross profit um, that was steady. Yeah, that you protected.
1: So, Bo, I don't want our time to get away from us. Before I okay. about this, okay, not many books also become a movement, <laughs> but Small Giants has become a movement or a community. What? What? How did that happen?
2: Well, actually, the Great Game of Business, which I also wrote with uh, Jack Stack, also became a movement. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, uh, what what happened was
1: pretty significant. Two of your books became movements.
2: Well, w- what happened was that. Um, with Small Giants was that after it came out, there were a lot of people who'd read it and identified with it. And, and they were telling me, you know, you have a great business opportunity here. You should really take advantage of it. Uh, and uh, one of the people who was uh, sort of getting in my case about that was an entrepreneur named Paul Spiegelman. And Paul was the founder and CEO. I know Paul. Uh, of, of a company, yes, in a, a great company in, in Texas. In fact, it was a company, Barrel, that, frankly, I, I would have included in the book if I'd known about it before I wrote the book. Um, so I was down visiting him, and uh, uh, he was sort of telling me about how there was this great opportunity. And I said to him, listen, Paul, I agree with you. There is an opportunity. What it needs is an entrepreneur. And I'm a journalist, and uh, um, if uh, you know if if you want to do something with this, I will give you all the support in the world. but it requires somebody who number one knows how to build a business, and uh number two uh, uh, has the financial resources to really get it going and Paul happened to have both of those. Uh, qualities, and he sort of said, "Do you really mean that?" And I said, "Yeah, I'll I'll support you the whole way." And so Paul really went out, and he began uh, creating this small giants community, and and it's really it's really Paul and his executive director uh, Hemzat uh, Dahir, um, who uh, have really built this small giants community. You know, I mean, I'm sort of there to sort of cheer them on, and, and sort of show up at events and things like that. But but it, but it it really is, uh, it really has been created by them and the people who, frankly, have decided that this is something that they really identify with and that they um, that they want to be associated with. So, like, we have a um, we have a summit every year. Um, and there are various other activities that, uh, that the community sort of sponsors. Um, and, uh, you know, it's an attractive following and then sort of coincidentally, three years ago, I was at Inc Magazine. I'd been there for 35 years and a couple of years ago, um, Forbes, my former editor at Inc. had he well, had gone to the New York Times and then he went to Forbes. He was recruited by Forbes to uh, beef up their entrepreneurship and uh, s- and small business coverage, and because uh, um, basically they didn't have the faintest idea what to do, and and so they they had a list that they were putting out called the best small companies in America. Every company on the list was a public company. Well, you know, the percentage of uh, small entrepreneurial right. companies that are public Miniscule. is tiny. Uh, yeah, minuscule. And so he, he, he basically, Lauren uh, Feldman, who is, uh, basically said, This is a ridiculous list. And they said, Well, what do you propose that we do? And he said, Well, I always like the criteria that my friend Bo Burlingham used when he wrote small giants and so basically he was encouraged to uh, do something with that and so he came to me and and said that he he was interested in producing that forbes was interested and he wondered if i would come over to work on um an annual list of small giants so one thing led to another and basically we've done three we just came out with the third one, the 2018 list. And every year we choose 25 companies that are small giants and we get, uh, lots of nominations. We're always looking for nominations. Um, and, uh, these are really, really great companies. I mean, I'm, I'm astonished by a lot of some of the wonderful things that they're doing. And, uh, so that that has certainly fed yeah. the movement as you put it.
1: And um, it's funny I I was not aware of that list until I was doing research for a conversation that I had with Rich Sheridan who made the list last year uh, uh-huh. innovations and right. Bo, I was amazed because I I knew Rich I'd interviewed him 3 4 years ago for another podcast and, and I knew the influence they had but once I discovered they were a small giant I was really amazed because here's a company of le- at that time less than 50 employees I think they've just gone over 50 and they have companies from around the uh-huh. world coming to see how they do business. It's really a small giant. Right.
2: It really is a small giant. And there are a lot of them there are actually quite a few of them. I don't wouldn't, wouldn't say that they're common but
1: their influence certainly is way bigger than their size yeah
2: right exactly exactly that's exactly right um and uh uh rich's company is a good example of that and uh um you know there are others i mean uh, we've had 75 well, before, to the list, and- the
1: 2018 list yeah. in the show notes. So if you're interested in seeing who's on that list, okay. you, you'll be able to get it through the show notes. Okay. Bo, I want to ask right. you something, because as I was preparing for our conversation, I, I heard you say something. And I just thought of this. This is one of those truisms that's not really true. I've heard this all my life. Find a job that you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Now, you're a journalist, is your writing all rainbows and unicorns? And there's never a day of work in your writing.
2: Well, I should I should confess <laughs> That's what that I, I hate writing. Hear you, say. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I love the research. I love finding out about these companies. I love interviewing people. And and I, after I've d- finished something, I love that part too. I love going out and talking about it, meeting other people, hearing what other people think. It's the part in between where you actually sit down with a blank piece of paper before you wind up with however many words you need to for, for a book. That's the hard part, and I've, I I don't find but isn't it isn't that fun true at to most every um, business.
1: There's part of it that you love, but. There's really part of it that's just the mundane that's got to be done.
2: Well, I I, I guess so. Right. I mean, I don't know every business, but but uh, I I do know that for me, you know, I, I I'm always a little suspicious when I run into people who say <laughs> that they love writing, and I say, what what exactly do you love about it? Um, and. uh, uh you know, but it, it's something, frankly, that I've tried to stop doing. Um, I, I, I went to I went to work when I went to work at Inc. I uh, um, I was doing some writing, and then I was promoted to uh, executive editor of the magazine. And I thought, oh, this is great! I'll be an editor, um, and and then I won't have to go through this. Well, turned out that my being an editor involved my writing a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> or rewrite a lot, and uh, it's also true that um, I, I, no matter what I did, I always had this sort of sense of myself as a journalist, as a writer, and so I was constantly being drawn back to it. And finally, I, in the late 1980s, I, I just gave up and said, "Okay, I'm, I'm going to write," and uh, uh, you know, and, and it was really after that that I wound up writing. Well, I want to thank you for down.
1: persevering because you've written some great books uh, and, and we didn't even get to talk about your newest one. Um, but, and I'll let you plug that because it, it's really worthwhile. Um, say a little bit about finish big,
2: finish big, finish big. It's uh, to tell you the truth. It's a somewhat misleading title because really hmm. it's about finish happy. Um, and uh, when, of the, when I started to write it, at I, I first place, I realized I didn't know anything. It was, it's about exits. and I, I realized I didn't know anything about exiting your business because, frankly, at Inc., we'd never written about it. And uh, I'd only had one experience where I'd sort of... One of my co-authors, actually, Norm Brodsky, had gone through the experience of, editing his, of exiting his business. And I realized that there was a lot of curiosity out there among business people about what it was like. So I talked to my publisher, and he said, "Yeah, why don't you write about exits?" And uh, this, you know, I realized I didn't know anything. So the first thing I needed to do was to go out and uh, interview lots of people. And one of the first things I discovered as I went out was, uh, "Gee, uh, it's amazing." What well, a large percentage of these people are actually unhappy, and I mean it almost didn't matter how much money they they got; they were still filled with regrets. You know, wish they hadn't sold their businesses. Um, you know, feeling sort of lost, not sure who they were anymore. And I thought, well, gee, maybe that's the book I should write. What's the difference between the ones who wind up happy? Because there were some, obviously, who did wind up happy afterwards. And I, you know, I basically said, well, what's the difference? And uh, so that was the book I wrote. That's what Finish Big is. And it was, I would say, one of the most educational mm. experiences for me because it, it really challenged, forced me to question a lot of things that I believed up till then. Uh, one thing was that... Um, You know, I'd always thought that an exit was sort of an event that happened, and uh, at some point in the future, you know, it's like, and and, and the more I studied it, the more I realized that an exit Mm. is actually a phase of the business. You have the startup phase, you have the growth phase, Mm. you do have the exit phase, and that there are actually four stages to it. Uh, One is one where you just sort of find out what the possibilities are. Or you educate yourself. That's sort of the exploratory phase stage. And then, then there's a uh, uh, another one, which is the strategic stage. And that's where you start. You, you build your company and you build into it the qualities that um, are going to allow you to have the options that you want when you reach the end. Um, then there's the third phase, which is the uh, actual execution phase. That's the one most people think of as the exit. That's where you call up you know, your lawyer, your accountant, or uh, you, you hire a business broker or somebody like that, and uh, you know that stage ends with a deal, and a lot of people think, well, the, the deal is the exit, but that's not because that just gets to the fourth stage, which is the transition. And that's where you go from being the owner of a business to whatever it is you're going to do next. Uh, and that's often the most difficult phase for most people. So then the other thing that I realized was, because I, as I was working on this, that you know my whole idea of entrepreneurship had been wrong. I'd always thought that, you know, what's entrepreneurship? Well, it's about building companies, right? Well, actually, no. No. Um, it is about building companies, but, but entrepreneurship is mm. not a construction project. It, it's a journey. And like every journey, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the end is not when you build a company, build a, a great company. That's the middle. The end wow. is when you leave that company. Uh, and everybody's going to leave sooner or later. You may leave feet first, but you are going to leave. Everybody leaves, and uh, uh, if, you don't, if you don't realize actually from a very early stage what you're doing, namely that you're on this journey, and, um, and that you should really start thinking fairly early on about, well, how do I want this journey to end? Because there are a lot of decisions that people make along the way which limit their options. They're not careful that limit their options at the end, and uh, you know so it's it's wise to start thinking about this at an early stage and and then to have some idea as you're going along about you know really what are the kinds of uh, of options that you want to have i mean you can sell it, you could turn it into a family business if you want you could. Uh, bring your children into it. You could sell it to your managers. You could mm-hmm. sell it to your employees. Uh, there, there, are all, there are, you know, a, a certain number of options that you have. Well, and which ones do you want? Do you want a company that lasts longer than you? In other words, do you want a company that continues to be uh, an independent business after you've left it? Well, <coughs> if that's the case, there are all kinds of things that you need to do along the way to get ready for that. So really finish big is, is, is really about all that. Um, and, uh, well, that's, um, and, and, and it, it's the usual thing I do, which you is do I tell job. stories. Where do people, where that, do we
1: point people? If, if people have never heard or read uh, small giants or finish, finishing big or any of the other books, where do they go? Bo?
2: Well, I do have a website. It's called boburlingham.com. Uh, it, but, you know, it's also true that uh, there's a, there's a, the Small Giants community uh, has a website and an organization. And that's, if you want to find out about Small Giants, the place to go is smallgiants.org. Uh, um, you know, the great game of business. Um, which was the first book I wrote actually with Jack Stack, who is a, who is an entrepreneur and a uh, co-founder of a company in Missouri called Springfield Remanufacturing. And uh, they have their, they have a whole organization. There's a whole organization that uh, called the great game of business, which was the name of the book. Um, and, uh, Mm -hmm. They do great stuff, wonderful stuff, and and they can be found at greatgameofbusiness.com. And there's a conference every year of um, people who are, of companies, really, and people from companies that are practicing this great game of business. It's uh, it's grown and grown and grown. I mean, I think last Mm -hmm. year it was like 600 people. Uh, It outgrew St. Louis which is where it used to be. And uh, now it's in Dallas. Uh, you know, it's in, the, it's in September. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, so.
1: Okay, we'll include links to all know. of those in the show notes. But what a pleasure it has been. Thank Great. you so much for joining us and, and sharing uh, part of our journey with us.
2: Well, thank you, Kevin. I've enjoyed the conversation any, any greatly.
1: Parting
2: words from Bo yeah i'm I would my parting words to entrepreneurs to people who are building businesses uh, what you're doing is really, really important, and it's important it's important to have a higher purpose for it and to realize what it is i mean um, and I, I mean you know, there are people who start companies just because they want right. to make a lot of money, and and that's okay. I, I don't make any judgment about that. But it's hard to be to get other people excited about you're making a lot of money. Um, and if, if if that's what you want to do, well, okay, you know, go for it. You know, but but there's a possibility. But the fr- frankly. You're probably going to have a much more successful company. In fact, you're probably going to make a lot more money if uh, you think about yeah. the business differently, and you realize the role that I mean the role that business plays. I mean, you know, really, what is a business? A business is a group of people trying to create something, whether it's a product or a service, that other people <coughs> like so much. That they're willing to pay you not only what you what it costs you to create it, but more than what you grow. In other words, profit. Profit, you know, is in fact the applause. You can look at profit as the applause that your customers are giving you. And uh, when you think about it that way, uh, you know your attitude towards it. that will affect the way right, you
1: approach All right, Bo, what it. great final words, and you actually inspired me uh, with some thoughts then. <laughs> I'll unpack those later, but thanks for joining us, Bo.
2: Sure. Thank you, Kevin, and uh, good luck thank with you, your Bo. show and your podcast.
1: Wow, Bo, thanks for joining us, and thanks for being generous with your time and your insights. I want to wrap this up by uh, recapping some of the things that lingered in my mind after the conversation. I love this. Entrepreneurship is not a construction project. It's a journey. So enjoy the journey. Number two, talking about entrepreneurs, every entrepreneur has a passion and a view of a change they want to see in the world. What's the change you want to see in the world? And what's the passion that really has a hold in your heart? Third, there are three key questions you must ask and answer. Who are you? What do you want? And why? Do you have answers to those questions now? If not, who can help you find the answers to those questions? They're critical to unlocking your journey forward. And then finally, I can't leave without saying this, what, when Bo said, what you're doing is really important, find your higher purpose. Hey, this is the Higher Purpose Podcast, and we're all about you finding your purpose and unlocking that and passionately pursuing purpose in business, leadership, and life. Thanks for joining me today. I look forward to being back with you next week.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Higher Purpose Podcast. Remember, if you ever think that your work could be less ordinary, there's not much between you and something extraordinary. Just 13 weeks and a bold experiment. Find out more at 13weekstoextraordinary.com.